Let me pray and then we'll uh, jump into Hebrews chapter 8. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the speaking God who's revealed himself to your creatures. You've made yourself known to us so we might know what the purpose of our life is, so that we might know what it is to live for the one who created us. Help us this morning to not only hear your words, but to listen and understand and live in light of them. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as, as a kid, I remember dreaming of uh, buying this particular skateboard. I, I was the kind of kid that um, hated spending money on food. I hated spending money on, on outings. I was very much a materialist. I would save my pennies to buy something real, something tangible that lasted. And uh, my sin of materialism would usually start with a picture in a catalogue. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. You get a catalogue in the post or whatever it might be. You pick it up at the store. And so there I was as a you know, teenager flicking through this particular catalogue and I spotted this, this cool new skateboard. So I kept looking at it and you, know, you look at it longer than you desire it and you want it, you dream of owning it, which then led me to go to the shop to buy it. And uh, being a poor teenager, I couldn't afford to buy the skateboard in one hit. So I put it on lay-by, if you remember putting stuff on lay-by. There was no afterpay. You had to kind of you know, pay your way off slowly in those days. And uh, each week, for week upon week, I would walk into this store and give them my next 20 buck installment to pay off this skateboard. Uh, you know, having to be content in the meantime at home to look at the picture in the catalogue, dreaming of the day when this skateboard would be mine. But uh, eventually, after many $20 trips, uh, it was mine. Uh, the dream had kind of finally become my reality uh, at least the part of the dream where I would own it, the other part of the dream where I thought I'd be this really cool skater and do mad tricks and all that sort of stuff, that didn't really materialize. But I had the real thing now. It was in my hand. Uh, it was there under my feet for me to enjoy. Now, wouldn't it be the most absurd thing, having waited so long for the real thing in my hand, to then go back to simply looking at the picture? Because that's that's the kind of absurdity we see in this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, see, I didn't tell you that story just to confess my sin of materialism. I told you the story because the original readers of this letter, they were tempted to give up on the real thing for a picture, to, to give up on, on the reality that the Old Testament pointed to, which was Jesus, which is Jesus, to then go back to the pictures and the shadows of the Old Testament. And that's been part of the main teaching of this letter so far, that the writer of Hebrews has been warning his readers, don't go back. Don't go back to the Old Testament ways and pictures. All of those Old Testament ways, they're signposts, that they point to the real thing, to Jesus. It's an absurdity to leave Jesus to go back to the very thing that points to Jesus. Or to put it another way, it's an absurdity to, for me to have left that very real skateboard to go back to the catalogue when the catalogue is designed to make me buy the skateboard. And this idea of the real and the picture or the, the reality and the shadow is the focus of the next few chapters of Hebrews. So over the next few weeks, we'll see how the Old Testament ways of worship, they were actually a shadow to the real thing that we find in Jesus. Uh, and in many ways, Hebrews chapter 8, our chapter today, it's, it's an introductory chapter to these next few weeks. But like we've said many times in this Hebrews series so far, the temptation for us, for, for us here today, it, it's not to go back to Old Testament ways of worship and the Old Testament pictures. 
that that's not our problem. I know that's not our problem in that sort of way. And none of us here were thinking, okay, I'm going to go home now and buy a one-way ticket to Jerusalem because I'm going to spend the rest of my life worshipping on the Temple Mount there. That is not our problem. However, as we come to this passage, I think our problem is that we forget that Jesus is what is truly real. That Jesus is the real thing. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that Jesus is actually the purpose of everything, of all things. Not just the Old Testament ways, but of all creation. That Jesus is the reason this creation exists in the first place. I think we forget that. That Jesus and the praise and glory of God is the very reason that you exist and that I exist. We were created for his praise. You see, all of history is headed towards the praise and glory of Jesus. And sometimes we forget that. We forget that Jesus is what is truly real. We, we get caught up in the things of this life, the things of this world. We get tempted to, to live for them because we think they are what is truly real. But they're not. And you see, you know, people go through life, they're trying to find meaning, they're trying to find purpose, they're trying to find what's truly authentic. That's kind of the buzzword of our world, you know, be your, your authentic self. But in the end, it's Jesus that's truly real. So my simple hope for today is that we might be reminded of all that we have in Jesus. And knowing what we have in Jesus, then we'd never be so foolish or so absurd as to ever leave Jesus for anything be it to go to some Old Testament way of worship or anything else. So let's start. And what the Hebrews uh, writer does as he starts this chapter is he actually summarizes what he's said so far. And this is point one. If you've got your outline there, that'll be helpful. So we're up to point one. We have the real high priest. Have a look. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Please have your Bibles there. Otherwise, you're flying blind. I'm sure if you stick your hand up, if you haven't got a Bible, someone will bring one to you. But make sure you've got one there. So chapter 8, verse 1, read along with me. The writer of Hebrews says this, he says, Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest. What kind? The kind who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now what is that saying? Put simply, all that's been said of Jesus' high priesthood over the last few weeks, which a lot has been said if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, what have we seen? We've seen Jesus is the high priest who can actually sympathize with our human weakness. Uh, Jesus is the kind of high priest who can sympathize with our human temptations. And yet because he never sinned, he can actually help us as our high priest in our weakness and in our temptations. Or what did we see last week? We saw Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is a bit tricky, but if you were here last week, in the end, it was quite simple. It just means that Jesus was better than any weak, sinful Old Testament priest in the line of Levi, in the line of Aaron, uh, a priest who in the end would die because of their humanity that needed to be replaced. Now, Jesus, we saw last week, is the priest who is holy, And innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And so the writer is saying to his hearers uh, there in point one, in verse one, saying the the main point for you to realize is this. You have this kind of high priest. You have the kind of high priest who can save you. You have the kind of high priest who intercedes for you. And he'll never fail you. Why? Because he doesn't sin. 
and he never dies. You, you have this. You see, verse 1 of chapter 8 is really a summary of the chapters we've seen. It's there to help us grasp and to realize that all those incredible things we've read about Jesus so far, uh, all those riches that you've been delving into, hopefully in your gospel teams through the week, those things, they're not academic. It's not like, oh, isn't that cool that Jesus is those things? Isn't it a nice thing to know? Isn't it a, a, a nice bit of information? No, no, those things are there to help us to realize, wow, that is the high priest you have. That is the kind of high priest who is our high priest. And isn't that incredible? Isn't that mind-blowing? You just have to go back in your Bibles and read Ezekiel 34 or read the book of Malachi and just see how corrupt and inferior the Old Testament priesthood could become. You just have to go back and read church history to see how corrupt so-called priests and and pastors of churches can become, even in recent history, sadly. But none of them are the reality. See, none of them are the real high priest Jesus is. He is our high priest. That's the point of verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to deal with uh, verses 2 to 5 of uh, chapter 8. And that's because what the writer of Hebrews does is he introduces some things that then he'll, he'll pack out more fully in the chapters down the track. And you've probably realized that that's what Hebrews does a lot of the times. Uh, you get this idea that's kind of introduced and you go, what is that about? And he doesn't really unpack it and you have to wait for later chapters for him to expand on it more fully. So we'll leave those verses for today because we'll look at them in the next uh, couple of weeks. Because the main focus for today is a long quote we have from Jeremiah 31 uh, from verses 7 to 12. And if you just go to verse 6 for a moment, see, look at verse 6 so you can understand the logic. Look at verse 6. The writer tells us, because Jesus is the real and superior high priest, well then, verse 6, because of those things, Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he's the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. So what that's saying, he's saying that now that the real and superior priest Jesus is here, well, he brings with him this better covenant. And he brings with him a better covenant based on better promises. And verses uh, 7 to 12, they're all about this better covenant and all about the promises that that covenant is based on. So we're up to point two now. We have the real covenant. But before we look at the details of those verses, the first thing we need to understand is, well, what's a covenant? If this is the better covenant based on better promises, what actually is a covenant? And at its most basic, a covenant, it's an agreement between two or more parties. So let me give you an example. Uh, If I say to one of my children, uh, say to this in the afternoon, I say to them, if you do your homework diligently, then I promise I'll take you to the park. And if that child agrees, then we've got a covenant. We've got an agreement. And in that example, there, there are two parts to the agreement. There's the if part. So it's if you do your homework. And then there's the, the promise part. If you do your homework, then I promise to take you to the park. And uh, for my personal situation, depending which t- child I'm talking to, will depend if the park ever happens or not. But I could simply also say to one of my children... I promise to take you to the park. See, that's a different sort of promise. And in that example, again, there's two parties, but there's no condition. 
There's no if. There's no if you do your homework. It's simply I say, I promise I will take you to the park. It's one-sided. It's, it's unilateral. It depends on me. See, that's a covenant. But when we're talking about covenants in the Bible, don't think you know the well-meaning promise of a father to a child. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad promised to take me to Parramatta Speedway. Does anyone remember Parramatta Speedway? A couple of hands. It shut last year, forever. My dad never took me. I feel scarred for life that he never took me. His promise has fallen to the ground. But that, that's not a biblical covenant. You see, biblical covenants, think of a solemn commitment. Uh, think of a solemn commitment with, with high stakes, like a, like a marriage covenant. That's an Old Testament covenant. That's a biblical covenant. Think about life and death itself sort of covenants. And these covenants, these agreements in the Bible, they're very important. And in the Old Testament, without going into too much detail, when God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt in the time of Moses and in the giving of the law, he made a very important covenant with Israel. And he said to them, we won't look at it now, but he said to them back in Exodus 19, he said, if you listen to me and carefully keep my commands and statutes, you will be my people and I will be your God. And notice the, the, the if in that covenant that God made with his people. He said, if you listen, if you carefully obey. And at that time, the people who'd just been rescued out of Egypt from God, the people all agreed. They all said, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. But if you know your Old Testament, they didn't. And so in the Old Testament, that the covenant between God and his people, it did not work. It was broken. And then they went into exile. So you have a look again now at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. So look at verse 7. The writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, For if that first covenant, the one that I had just spoken about with Moses in the time of Moses... For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no occasion for a second one. In other words, if the first, the first covenant had failed, and so because the first covenant failed, there was a need of a second one. There was a, the need for a new one. And just to be clear, the first covenant had fault not because of God. It's not because God had failed in his promises. It failed because of the people. It's not because you know my fatherly promise to my kids has failed. No, it's because the said child who missed out on the park failed to do their homework and they were too lazy watching TV and iPads and trampolines. Not that I have specific ideas in mind. That's why it failed. See, look at verse 8. See, what does verse 8 say? Where was the fault in verse 8? The fault was with his people. And so that first covenant in the Old Testament in the time of Moses failed because of the people. And so what did God do? Well, what God did all the way back in the time of Jeremiah, which is this long quote that we have in Hebrews chapter 8. It's actually the longest Old Testament quote that we have in the New Testament. See, what God did in the time of Jeremiah during the heights of Israel's failure as his people, he declared to them a new covenant. He said one day that lay in the future, one day that was yet to come, one day I will give you these promises. It was unilateral. It was a promise that was dependent not on the people but on God. And if you have a look at the promise there in verses 8 to 12, just run your eyes quickly down verses 8 to 12. 
Do you notice how often the words I will comes up? Do you notice how often it's there? So look at verse 10, in verse 8. It's there in verse 8. And then three times I will comes up in verse 10. Twice again in verse 12. And if you look through that whole section, there's no, there's no ifs. Just I, God, will. And what we're going to do now is look quickly at these verses to understand these promises of the new covenant. But realize that as we read them, these are the covenant promises that God's people now have because of Jesus. See, that's the point back in verse 6. Because we have the real high priest, Jesus, because he's our high priest, well, we have these real promises of the new covenant as our promises. So four things I want us to just notice quickly about these new covenant, uh, this new covenant promise from God. Promise number one, God will write his law on his people's hearts and mind. Look at verse 10. So verse 10, this is, this is quoting again Jeremiah 31, the promises that God made back then. Verse 10, But this is the covenant that, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, that is after the days of exile, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. You see, part of the problem with the Old Testament covenant, with the Old Covenant, with the Old Testament law, is that that law was written on tablets of stone. That the people of Israel, they, they knew God's law, but they didn't have the heart to actually keep that law. And so you get passages like Ezekiel 40, uh, 36 that talks about uh, God's people needing a heart transplant. That actually, your hearts are hearts of stone. You know the, the, the law written on tablets of stone, but your, your heart is cold towards it. You don't want to do it. You have hearts of stone. And so Ezekiel 36 talk about, talks about how God would put a new heart in his people. A, a heart that will come with his spirit. And that's what this is talking about. If you want to read more, you can go to Romans chapter 8. But the point is, God would put his spirits into his people's hearts, into his people. And so his people will no, no longer have hearts that, that were cold like stone, but have hearts that, that want to serve him, have, have minds that actually do understand him. They, they will have lives that actually want to do his law because God is at work in them by his spirit. And because of that, promise number two, God will be their God. So look at the end of verse 10 there. End of verse 10, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And again, part of the problem with the Old Testament covenant is when the people failed to live God's way, they showed by what they did who they were. So, so when they failed to live God's way, they, they actually showed, well, God, you're not my God because I don't care about your ways. They showed that they, they weren't his people. Which is obvious when you think about it, because what did the Old Testament uh, Israel do? They worshipped idols, they, they worshipped pagan gods, and so they did not care less about Yahweh. So what did God do? He rejected them. I remember Hosea, God said, and this would have hurt them at the time, God said, they are not my people. Look at them. They don't care about me. They are not my people, God declared in Hosea. But when the law is written on their hearts and minds, when God's spirit is at work, well, God will be their God. They will be his people and you will see that by what they do. So promise number three, 
all will know the Lord. Look at verse 11. Promise number three, verse 11. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the, latest, from the least to the greatest of them. And this is uh, part of what we've seen over the last few weeks in Hebrews. You see, no longer will God's people need to go through some earthly priest. Just realize how good that is. No longer will they need to go through some earthly priest. They will have Jesus as their high priest. So no longer will they need to depend on some earthly teaching of an earthly priest. Not that there's no room for teachers, but they will have God's spirit in them so that they truly know God. Which again is very different to the old covenant. It won't just be that the prophets or the kings in God's, in God's place, in God's nation, that they will have God's spirit like the Old Testament. No, no, in the new covenant, from the least to the greatest, from the person who sweeps the floor of the king's floor to the king himself is the picture. From the least to the greatest, they will have God's spirit. And all of them will know personally and fully their God. But the greatest of the new covenant promises comes with this last one. And the last one actually holds them all together. Promise number four, God will no longer remember their sins. See, look at verse 12. And notice the word for uh, in verse 12. Look at verse 12. All the promises will come to be for because God says, I will be merciful to my people's wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. You see, why did the old covenant fail? Because of human sin. Why did God reject and judge his people and send them into exile back in the Old Testament? Because of human sin. Why is it impossible for humanity to have peace with God? Why why is it impossible for humanity to live with God and see the holy God face to face? Because of human sin. It is the massive problem of humanity. And God declares this incredible promise. He says, I will be merciful to their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. So just, just stop and consider how incredible that actually is. Uh, this is, uh, this is the, the, the fattest book I have on my shelf at home. Uh, I actually started reading it a few weeks ago. It's very depressing reading a fat book uh, because I'm a couple of hundred pages in and like the bookmark feels like it never moves. It's the fattest book I have, but imagine that all my sins were written down in this book to be read. All my selfish thoughts of my days written down. All the unspoken words that I've had in my mind that I actually haven't spoken, but God knows them. All the ways my eyes have caused me to sin that nobody else would know except me and God. All the ways my hands have caused me to transgress. Every action, every deed, every word written down to be read. See, I wouldn't want to guess how many volumes of books just like this would be recorded. Now, how many stacks of books like that would be up on a bookshelf? Recordings of the sins of Mike. It would go for volume after volume. And because I know that you're a sinner just like me, because I know we're the same, I know that the same is true just for you. So just think of, the, just think of those moments in your life that bring you to shame. Private moments, public moments, 
The things that you and I have done that we remember doing that perhaps sometimes keeps us awake at night because we know we shouldn't have done them, but we did. Moments that we reflect back on and we wish we could relive and and do over and not do the same way. Moments that are in our minds, embedded in our memories, that we remember. Well, in the time of Jeremiah, over two and a half thousand years ago, God made a promise. He made a promise that he would never again remember such sins. And just over 2,000 years ago, God kept his promise. He kept his promise to be merciful to human sin by sending his son. Jesus, his son, our high priest, who died so that our sin might be dealt with. So that our sin might be remembered no more. Forgiven and forgotten. So did you see how incredible this promise of God is? Our world is pretty poor at forgiving and forgetting. Specifically and especially our world is very poor at forgetting. Our world is so quick to remind people of this atrocity back then, of this other thing, this other wrongdoing. We're so slow to forget. We love to remind people of, oh, do you remember when you did that to me? We're so bad at truly forgiving. But God promises here he will remember our sins no more. Forgiven and forgotten. See, we won't be there in a new creation enjoying all the blessings of God and then God turns around and says, oh, don't, you know, but don't you remember when you did this? And don't you remember that time when you, when you said? You see, the promises of God's new covenant is that there will be no volumes of Mike's sins written down to be read because they're all dealt with in Jesus, my high priest. And the same is true for you if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour and your high priest. So let me put this all together for us as we finish up. So go back to verse 6. Looking at verse 6. So given what we've just read about the new covenant, can you see how Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry? Can you see how Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant? Can you see how that better covenant, after those four promises we just read, is enacted on better promises? And so can you see the point that the writer of the Hebrews is making to those first readers? They were tempted to go back to the Old Testament priests. They were were tempted to go back to the Old Testament covenant. And given what we've just seen, wouldn't it be the most absurd thing for these first readers to go back to the unreal Old Testament ways, given that their reality is in Jesus? Having waited so long for the promises of God to be fulfilled, for all that Jeremiah 31 said, having waited for that new covenant to come, wouldn't it be the most absurd thing for them to then go back to Old Testament pictures? You see, that's the point of the concluding verse in verse 13. Look at verse 13. By saying a new covenant, he's declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. In other words, forget the old. It's finished. It's done with. That Old Testament way, it's not real. What is truly real is Jesus. Jesus is the real thing. And that's what, I, that's what I want us to be reminded of today. You see, we have all that is truly real in Jesus. You see, that's the good news of this passage. If Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, then just realise that you are on the right side of all of history. Why does this creation exist? It's for Jesus. 
Why does anything exist at all? It's for Jesus. It's all about him. And when you remember to to pick up the language of Revelation 21, that the future reality is one where we will be with God and God will be our God and we his people and death and crying and pain will be no longer. When that is truly real, that's the reality of all reality. You, You can have whatever idea you want in your mind of what this life is about. It's about Jesus. That's the reality. When we remember that, doesn't it put everything into perspective? Doesn't it make anything else that we're tempted to live for just absurd? Anything else outside of Jesus, like the old covenant, is about to disappear. To put it bluntly, your job, your money, your possessions, your home, all those things that are necessary for this life, for the moment, they will disappear. They will be old and forgotten and be no more. But Jesus will never disappear. Here's the reality. So wouldn't it be absurd to live for those things? I've been reading through Job lately, and it's such a powerful book, if you've ever read the book of Job. He, he loses everything in this life. He loses his wealth, he loses his health, he even loses his kids. And the whole book is this journey for him to remember that what is truly real is God and his purposes and his plans. And for us, in light of the New Testament, Jesus, his son. So if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then you have all that is truly real in him. You have the great high priest. You have the promises of the covenant. So let us not be so absurd as to ever leave Jesus for anything else. For anything else that in the end is not the real thing, that is in the end disappearing. That's like a picture fading into non-existence. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I pray that we might be reminded this morning of how what is real and what is true reality is all found in Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that we would never leave him for anything else and that, might we, that we might realize what is truly real in him. And thank you, Father, that he is our high priest. Thank you that we have all our sins forgiven in him. Thank you for those who trust in Jesus, that you are our God and will be such for all eternity. This we thank you for in Jesus' name. Amen.